Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Jesse Forrester, co-founder and CEO of Mozzie Mobility. Mozzie is a Kenyan mobility as a service company that is reimagining mobility through the implementation of an electric vehicle ecosystem in Africa. Through Mozzie, you can own an electric motorbike and tuk-tuk. Today, you can do so with zero emissions, zero charge time. You just swap the batteries and drive. Now, I was excited for this one because the focus of MCJ has primarily, but not exclusively, been Western-focused. And that's not because we think that the Western world is more important or somehow plays a bigger role in addressing the problem of climate change, but more just because that's where we are. The developing world is just as important, or you could argue more important, as the bulk of the emissions yet to be done is going to come from the developing world looking forwards. And how people get around in the developing world Super important. It's a big problem, both in terms of climate and emissions, but also in terms of pollution. There needs to be a better way. Mozzie is trying to bring about that way. I learned a lot from this one, and I'm so glad that Jesse was willing to come on the show and share his story. Jesse, welcome to MCJ. Thank you, Jason. Great to be here. Great to have you. And uh, as we chatted a, a little bit before we started recording, we had another company in the, in the same broader space, Basico, on recently. But this is such an important area, and it's so new to me. And you guys you know, have a different approach with a different customer focus with different vehicles and, and potentially some other tweaks to the model as well. And I figured it couldn't hurt just to learn more about this important area and just to get to know you better as well, since we have a bunch of points of commonality. 
Yes, Jason. I think I just had the podcast with JIT and Moxie. So I thought it was really interesting. And I like there's more of a focus around developing markets and what's happening in terms of the people who are jumping climate in those places. So. Yeah, I feel like I need this disclaimer when I talk to people that we, it's not been exclusive, but it's been pretty heavy U.S. focus on MCJ over the last couple of years that we've been doing this. And that's not by any stretch because we believe that the U.S. is a more important lever for change. In fact, given how developed it is and how much development is left to do in other parts of the world, the U.S. and other Western nations arguably are less of a lever for change. It's more just been that we've had such a tiny team and there's so much ground to cover. It almost doesn't matter where we start, but directionally, we absolutely aspire to get more global over time. So thank you for helping us take one more small step closer towards doing so. I think that's fine. And um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of opportunity here on the continent, specifically because we are going to be disappropriately affected by climate change. Um, so having stories come out of here and uh, MCJ also expanding that focus is cool. I'm happy to shed light in whatever way is possible and provide another perspective. Well, taking things from the top, as we typically do, what's Mazi Mobility? Mazi Mobility is a mobility as a service company based here in Nairobi, Kenya. We assemble and sell electric motorcycles, as well as build and operate the infrastructure that supports them. We started in April of 2021, became operational then. So it's almost been a year and one month and are pushing forward in making sure that we can have more electric motorcycles on the road. So what's the origin story for the company? How did it come about and why did it come about? So I was living in South Africa in 2018 and I have a background in entrepreneurship and economics. And I really wanted to do something back in Kenya. I was focused on, on building a business. I just didn't know what business. And so I was walking around in Nairobi and passed by Nairobi CBD. And I don't know if you've been to Nairobi, Jason. It's very you know, crowded with lots of uh, matatus. I think that the audiences of matatus are uh, moving around Nairobi. And one just crossed my path and had a lot of smoke in my face. And this was really upsetting to me because I just kept thinking, wow, can we not figure out a way to make sure that this doesn't happen. And previously, I'd done a lot of research on transportation in the continent and infrastructure development in the continent and just seen that that had really never happened and since, well, forever. After kind of complaining to myself for five minutes, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if we were going to electrify Matatu? So Mazi initially started as an electric Matatu business, which is interesting because Basi goes on here. And then through the pandemic, we had a bit of a tactical shift towards motorcycles because motorcycles are the fastest growing vehicle segment on the continent, growing about 15% CAGR. And there are over 250,000 of them in Kenya registered every single year. That number is going up to 300,000. And they're absolutely necessary for movement in the city and in East Africa. They're estimated to be about 1.6 million and, and support about 5.2 million households of people directly and indirectly. So it's a big, big uh, segment of the market. And my why is simply because as a person, I've always been drawn to climate or impact-based businesses and solutions. Previously to Mazi, I was working for a waste management company. I also built a waste management treatment facility here in Johannesburg, uh, living machine, cycle and recycle wastewater from the school's campus, school's kitchen, and then the reusing green vegetables, etc. So it's very much circular economy. So for me, it's very at the core of what I do um, and the core of who I am. And I'd love to unpack that shift from matatus to motorcycles a little more. So what was it that convinced you that motorcycles were a better place to focus? 
we were doing Matata. So we kind of started doing Mazi around March 2020. The idea came around and then COVID happened. When COVID happened, investors and such like people were saying, hey, we're focusing on our portfolio companies. And I started talking to more policy influencers. So people who work in the National Transport Safety Authority in Kenya, talking to the Kenya Revenue Authority. And the idea at the time was to do a matatu conversion and then have them run on the road. And so there were issues from a vehicle stability standpoint and also from a customer standpoint in terms of owning the matatu and would bear the cost of a converted matatu because the chassis would still be an old one. So there are a couple of question marks that came about from a policy side, regulation side, and also from a customer's point of view that then made me think, hmm, this might be a bit more of a tall order to pull off, especially because we had such little founder capital in the beginning. And I was really trying to get um, something off the ground with a really strong MVP that could showcase this is a viable solution, e-mobility is a viable solution on the continent. And so when I started hearing a little bit more about motorcycles and thinking, hmm, it's not too, too big of a shift from a tattoos, but also lowest hanging fruit and has the most impact uh, just because of how many they are and how many people they support directly and just how big the vehicle segment is growing. So when I looked at those factors, it almost became a no-brainer to me that I, a switch from Matatus to motorcycles was needed. Also, you'll see the price parity of a new electric motorcycle and a new petrol or ICE motorcycle is not that far apart. So this was the most likely solution to take off based on where we were, based on where the world was and something that we could then push and have a solution come out into the market. So a bunch of different factors really pushed me towards that direction. One year later, here we are. And when you talk about solution, when you looked at the rise of electric motorcycles in Kenya, what problem or problems did you see? Motorcycles on the road for 10 plus hours a day. And unlike here, I'm now sitting in, in South Africa where you have your Harley Davidson that's you know more of your personal motorcycle really loud. In Kenya, they use for commercial uh, work. So this is you know carrying people, carrying food, carrying parcels, very much you know really pounding the pavement. And when you look at that from an operational standpoint, an OPEC standpoint, petrol was really a big cost to these uh, motorcycle owners, despite how little they were making. And so this became a real sticking point amongst most of the motorcycle riders I spoke to. And then when it comes to maintenance, they had to spend about 10 to $15 every, every two weeks on engine oil, which might sound like a small cost, but to them is, is really, really sizable. Um, and so when we looked at it from an operational standpoint and said, the inefficiencies of a petrol-driven uh, motorcycle compared to the efficiencies of an electric-driven motorcycle and the differences in the price of energy and the price of petrol, it made a lot more sense as a viable business, but also something that would speak to the economics of the consumer, which is the most important thing to them when it comes to switching to electric. Now, the other effects that were more interesting is air pollution affects uh, 1 million people in developing markets. And if you're on the road inhaling fumes, all the time for about like 10 hours, six days a week, it becomes such a problem. And the vibrations of the electric, of the uh, ice bike also are so hard for the motorcycle riders to, to bear. So these different factors from a social standpoint was something that we said we could help them, but then would also be paired with an economic in incentive to really make sure that it would work out. When you looked at the electric motorcycles, you talked about the 250,000 that are getting registered every year, you talk about the problems with petrol or the advantages of electric, but what were the issues in electric that you spotted and 
set out to address. Electric motorcycles are great, but when you buy one, the first thing you think about is where am I going to charge my motorcycle? Um, where am I going to find the infrastructure necessary? And this, after the cost of the motorcycle, which can be bridged with mass asset financing, is the second biggest sticking point to preventing the mass adoption of these electric bikes. Mazi, as a company, saw that as a real interesting opportunity, not only to deliver value, but to capture value as a business. And we started out by developing our own swapping stations where we own the IP, and they work in a way that a motorcycle rider who buys a Mazi motorcycle is able to look at an application, mobile app, and know exactly how much battery charge is left in the battery on the motorcycle, where the next swapping station is going to be, um, and what percentage of the batteries are in those motorcycle in, in those swapping stations, and be routed to a swapping station and book a battery that so that they can do a, a swap in a minute. And what you see is because they're on the road so frequently, you don't have time to charge your motorcycle for eight hours or six hours, and the sophistication due to the size of the batteries on motorcycles is not that high. So, you know, doing a, a DC fast charging, for example, is really tricky when you look at a motorcycle as opposed to a car. In a way, we're building on an ecosystem that allows the riders to know where the swapping station will be, to access a battery without having to get to a swapping station and not find one, and also to actively monitor the amount of charge they have left so that they can plan their trip. We've also had to make some modifications to our motorcycle, making sure that it's a dual battery bike, just to have that peace of mind and security for the rider to then be able to go about his or her day without having to worry about my battery running out. When they switch to the second battery source of power, they then know I can go into a swapping station and do a quick swap and I'm ready to go for the day. So it sounds like when you looked at the landscape that both the lack of robust infrastructure was one issue and also being able to leverage that infrastructure efficiently and manage your trip planning to make sure that you aren't having to stop every 10 minutes, but also aren't running out of charge either, that by combining the bike and the charging infrastructure and then layering a digital platform on top, you can provide an experience that is more efficient and reliable for customers. Absolutely. And this really speaks to how they, they work, right? If you are a foods delivery company, you want to do under 30 minute delivery, at least in Nairobi. We're not yet hit the 10, the 10 minute delivery, um, sort of like startups. And so getting there, if you have a motorcycle that just terminates or doesn't have enough charge becomes a big problem for that company, but also for the rider because they're paid on a per trip basis. So this naturally has a lot of hesitation if the infrastructure is not deployed. And you know, we're still in early days of deploying infrastructure, but we're seeing this peace of mind application that we are layering and we're building ensuring that riders are able to you know, quickly access a battery and not have that fear um, when it comes to range anxiety. What type of customer are you focused on? So we've got two different customer focuses. So the lowest hanging fruit is the B2B side of the market. So these are delivery companies that own fleets of motorcycles and then do food delivery, parcel delivery, uh, ride hailing. And then you've also got the individuals. So these are border border riders who are individual riders that then are part of these platforms and move people, goods, and what have you. These are kind of the two 
big customer segments. The biggest one is definitely the B2C side um, of individual customers. I think they comprise more than 95% of the market and are really the ones we are targeting in the medium to long term. When they ride electric motorcycles today, how are they primarily doing so? Is it by buying the motorcycle directly or are they getting it through a service like a Mazi? How they're riding the motorcycle today is from Mazi's standpoint, they're buying from us directly. We're thinking about doing a distribution model where you you have a franchise or you have a, a distributor that's then able to have consumers come in and buy motorcycles. So what you will see is with motorcycles in particular, a lot of them are financed. Having that financing arm attached to a distributor, that infrastructure already exists for petrol bikes. And so what happens if it's you, Jason, you want to buy a motorcycle, you'd walk in, pay a certain deposit, about $150, and then pay maybe 4.5 USD per day for 30 days for about 12 to 18 months or 24 months and then get your motorcycle. Um, so able to start working right away. And the same model we've chosen at Mazi, and initially now because there are not so many motorcycles, we're doing it ourselves, but then think that there's long-term utility in ensuring there's a distribution model that can serve customers at the point in which they are. If Mazi didn't exist, how are the, the bikes or the motorcycles that people are riding today, are, are they getting them largely through those distributors? Yes, largely through those distributors. And so are you positioning yourselves as a better bike or what? what's the value proposition that you are presenting to customers? And relatedly, are you looking to displace other motorcycles that customers own or, or are you looking to convert people that have never owned one before? If Mazi was not around, people would still buy it through a distribution because most of the petrol bikes now, the headquarters are in India and China. And then the bikes are brought here and assembled and then go through distributorships. And from a bike standpoint, as a better bike, what we believe and Mazi is that motorcycles will be commoditized. And the real value to the customer, we've seen this, is there's a sudden price ceiling um, that then customers just can't afford. It just doesn't make sense for the mass market to buy a, a more fancy bike. Um, and so what we're looking at is getting a bike that is fit for market but matches exactly the needs consumers want and in a price range that they can afford. And this is um, what you'd see at sub 1400 uh, US, uh, 1500 US dollars. And so the value prop that we give customers is based on the savings that they're making from switching to electric and the fact that once they do, we are able to completely manage um, infrastructure for them so that they have no downtime. So that, the economics is what's really pulling consumers into into the space. And what we are competing on is having the best network um, that can serve these customers when they do make the switch. Because um, once it's it's cheaper to operate, then customers are drawn in. And then from that point in time, you have this scenario where, can I actually manage my battery? Can I swap? Can I do X, Y, and Z? Um, and that's where Mazi is really operating. So the other motorcycle manufacturers that are electric, how does charging work with them? Are they doing it themselves like you are? And is it is it in a proprietary way? What does the public infrastructure look like for charging? I'm just trying to get a sense of the, the charging landscape overall and the strategies on a bike-specific standpoint. Um, what you're seeing is there's no real, real public infrastructure for charging uh, motorcycles. Um, and in the market, what you see is the different form factors that exist now of batteries. Um, and so and different voltages, et cetera. So this makes it really challenging 
when it comes down to having maybe unified uh, swapping or unified uh, charging infrastructure. And what you see is people are doing it themselves. And there are different approaches towards charging. There is charge points where a rider drops off a battery and is plugged in and it's being charged. And then there are two forms of swapping. So there's container-based swapping where you have a 20, 40-foot container, um, some on the side of the road or at a petrol station. And usually it's just for a heavier battery, about 40 kgs, that then is plugged in and charged, usually have an attendant there. And then there is cabinet-based swapping, which is what Mars is going for. That's OPEX Lite, and you have your 10, 21 battery swapping station cabinet, where the rider is then able to do a self-service swap and be ready to go still with the same amount of time. And so for different reasons, the market is choosing you know, charge points, is choosing cabinet, is choosing a container. There's a consensus that cabinet-based swapping is ideal. I think the tricky bit is how do you have a customer swap a battery that's 40 kgs? Uh, it's, it's pretty heavy. And so we, we sit at the 18 kg mark, which then makes it a bit simpler for a consumer to then put in a swapping station, to put a battery into a swapping station. And then there's also more analytics you can collect when you have a cabinet based on, you know, how many batteries are charging at one point, how many times have they been swapped, et cetera, all kind of like automatically. This is kind of a, what, what looks like at the landscape. We don't have a major uh, you know, like electric motorcycle player enter into the market right now because it's from country to country it would be different. Um, and also, again, you just can't deploy motorcycles. You'd have to also deploy infrastructure to support them. Um, and so our positioning as a company is to be that battery refueling business um, that's able to support our batteries, but then maybe one or two more batteries at scale to then have an intelligent system plugged into the battery and plugged into the bike that allows us to manage thousands of assets without downtime or without compromising service delivery to the consumer. Uh-huh. And when you think about, and this is not a Mozzie-specific question, but when you think about the transportation landscape and the the ways that people get around throughout cities in Kenya, what does that look like today? And is your bet that that breakdown will remain the same directionally, but just with cleaner inputs? So for example, with electric motorcycles instead of regular motorcycles, but the motorcycle percentage stays the same? Or do you have a view on how the transportation landscape overall should and will evolve? I think the question is more, first order question is, you know, how would the infrastructure from a government perspective come about? So I think motorcycles was a answer to the grid locking in Nairobi. I think, you know, if you've been to Nairobi, it's in Incredible traffic, um, three hours you can spend on the road. And when you need to get somewhere quickly, use a motorcycle. Now, I think that as more people, population grows and more people get in the city, there'll still be more strain on road infrastructure and people will then need to still move things faster. So I think the growth of motorcycles will increase as a percentage for transportation of people. But we're also going to have to see more safer motorcycles come on board. Because the biggest thing that's holding people back from even individuals from owning a motorcycle in a personal capacity and not in a commercial business sense is the safety aspect of a motorcycle on Kenyan roads. Um, And I think as this is beginning to change, because you can have a little bit more inputs with an electric motorcycle, not any specific, you can make it a little bit safer. Uh, And we think that maybe more people will then begin to switch towards um, a motorcycle as a mode of transportation. But I still think there's an opportunity or still a space for um, buses, for matatus. There's a mixed mode of modal transport that's still arriving. And the government in Kenya, for example, is trying to phase out these 14-seater vans and move towards bigger buses, um, which would then 
move more people. But fundamentally, um, we had this scenario uh, where motorcycles were banned for about two or three days, and almost all business scenarios became to a standstill. And it's not an exaggeration, because when you need a parcel delivered, who do you call your motorcycle rider? When you need food brought to your house, who do you call your motorcycle rider? When you're late to a meeting um, and you're together in 30 minutes, who do you call your motorcycle rider? So these scenarios are just going to keep happening the more people flood into Nairobi and more people flood into urban cities across the continent. And I think this is some of the indicators why it's growing the way it's growing. When you talk about safety as a barrier, and I guess this is not a climate-specific question, but it is a climate-specific question if it's actually inhibiting adoption, how do you make an electric motorcycle safer? Mazi's approach is we're working with AI, a company that looks at the behavioral metrics of their motorcycle rider, and it comes up with a scoring system. So acceleration, braking, uh, a bunch of these factors, um, because there's a big percentage of these accidents that are caused by the rider themselves. And I think it makes sense. If you're trying to make as many deliveries, as many trips as you can in a day, you're not going to drive in the safest way possible. So what we're trying to do is pair an incentive to have maybe cheaper insurance or better financing with a safer mode of transportation that then has the rider thinking, I don't, I don't need to go above a certain limit or if I'm moving this way and they can actually see on a specific platform how their score changes from time to time. Um, and we think that this would be one solution. We're not saying this is like the way that's going to make motorcycles safe in Arabic completely, but that behavioral change or that incentivization of behavioral change from the personal rider perspective is going to help making motorcycles just a little bit safer from a rider perspective. Because what you see is, for example, if you've got a red light in Nairobi, a motorcycle does not stop at the red light. Um, I was very... I'm impressed when I went to Rwanda and I was in Kigali and motorcycles were parked <laughs> at a red light. And everybody just kind of zoomed past you. Uh, and when you're in the back of one and you're late, you think, that's great. When you're in a car, you think, oh man, this is really terrible, these guys. That really tends to be the case. And what we are trying to do is say, hey, can we layer this as a potential opportunity to have you know, impact-based investors and people to then say, hey, we could actually have cheaper financing for motorcycles if you're a better rider. Or we could have uh, better insurance if you're a better rider, a better premium is a better rider, uh, if, you, if you ride safer through this particular ma matrix. And that's much easier to track on an electric motorcycle because you don't have vibrations, which then influence, you know, collections of acceleration, acceleration data, um, telemetry data, then make it just that the data is more, has more fidelity than what you'd see with a petrol motorcycle. So that's one way we're thinking about it. Where are you now as a company in terms of taking these motorcycles to market? We did our uh, MVP testing last year, which was great. We were in 10 and then now have partnered with a smart asset financing company to bring in uh, 50 more. And we've, we're then now looking at scaling that number to about a thousand, about a thousand by the end of the year, hopefully three or five thousand by the end of 2023. Um, and so this is still a small percentage of the market. As I mentioned, 250,000 bikes, but we also know that it's very important to walk before you can run because as you think about selling motorcycles, which is proven that that can be done, I think you also have to be very cognizant of how you then deploy infrastructure in a capital efficient way to be able to meet that growth of motorcycle demand. And so this is kind of where we are now in terms of saying deploying motorcycles, pushing them out, as well as then deploying infrastructure. We have about, we're deploying about 10 more battery swapping stations across Nairobi in the course of this year and have the third largest fleet, I think, in East Africa, to the best of my knowledge. So things are really starting to get excited. Obviously, we've been slowed down by COVID 
in in China as everyone else has, and just the absence of of lithium iron batteries, which is just such a challenge to the business. But still, lots of prospects for growth, not only in Kenya but also outside Kenya, um, and people really excited about having a full stack solution. If you're a financing company, you want someone who's going to manage the bikes and manage the infrastructure and you just finance what you need to finance. And the same thing in the delivery business. Uh, you want to focus on your core business, but make sure that it's green and make sure that it's cheaper to operate. Can you talk a bit about both how the company has been financed to date, but also how you anticipate it will be financed directionally, both in terms of the capital intensity, but also what types of capital will be the best fit? We've only had non-dilutive forms of financing. So we bootstrapped uh, the last year and then just recently got revenue-based financing from the Antap Global, which is based in San Francisco. And we are now raising our equity rounds. So we think that we may raise one or two more equity rounds. But then the rest of the CapEx financing would then sit um, at a sample of loan or debt um, financing to the business. Because what you see is once you import or assemble your electric motorbikes, most of them are then financed through uh, smart asset financing companies or asset financing companies and then take the, the bikes off balance sheet. And so these people then tend to manage a book of you know nearly 100,000 customers, etc. Um, so that becomes a really interesting way of then shifting motorcycles from an assembly plant into consumers' hands. And we think that this might then have Mazi look a lot at working capital needs in the medium to long term. Uh, to then be able to just bring in the units that we need and do the assembly that we need and then push those those motorcycles out. That then becomes a really interesting baseline for revenue growth, right? Because if you're then financing with CapEx um, and have already market with some customers already willing to take up the bike, then it becomes a really interesting equation when it comes to selling motorcycles. And so that's ideally how the financing of the bikes will be done. For the swapping stations that we own, we think it will still be some form of you know debt capex financing, um, and we're looking at really interesting models that are coming up for financing within the continent. Uh, but then really speak to the nature of business here beyond just you know your traditional debt to so look at venture debt, machine financing, etc. That prove like as interesting models for financing. How important is government in this? whole equation. And that could be in terms of incentives, that could be in terms of future policy. How much do you think about and or resource to government and government relations now and directionally? I think about them all the time. <laughs> um, I think it's one of those industries where you you have to speak to government. And I think, you know, it was the same with fintech. Um, the regulations when it comes to a motorcycle are key, but we've seen a lot of push and a lot of like adoption from government. So I sit on the CAB's technical committee of, of standards, and we are coming up with standards for battery swapping, um, for motorcycles, for safety of, of batteries. And then there's also talk in terms of national treasury to come up with a policy for immobility in the government that's soon to form in Kenya. So we're seeing a lot of push from different government bodies and ministries and institutions that are really getting behind this as an avenue towards making the city or making the country, you know, we always do that buzzword, leapfrogging. <laughs> so to leapfrog, allow me to use that dirty forms of transport towards something that's clean. I want to say that we've, we've pushed as an industry, we've had lots of support from the international community as well, um, to then get government in a place that's oriented, but now they're listening. And we are potentially going to have the first safety standards developed in Kenya on the continent and then have that push to East Africa and potentially Africa as then we craft policy that's really required and harmonized across 
the continent. So government is, is crucial. And at least in our case, they are paying attention and they are willing to move the needle for immobility. There are some narratives that say that that climate change and worrying about the existential threat of climate change is a privilege because it means that you probably don't have near-term considerations like how to put food on the table and shelter over your head and, and things like that. On the other hand, there's narratives that talk about how the wealthiest people and nations are the biggest contributors to the problem, yet the poorest people and nations are much smaller contributors, but will bear the brunt of the symptoms of climate change, at, at, at least as they first come to bear. Given that, it'd be interesting to hear from you how much people in Kenya care about climate change and how much they worry about it, how much it's on their minds. What is, the, what is their perception about the problem and how big a threat it poses uh, t- to them? I think there's an emergent awareness um, amongst people about climate change. Um, and so I would split it into, if you're talking about my customers, water riders really care more about the economics. And so I would say if petrol bikes were more efficient than electric bikes, then petrol bikes would be a mainstay technology, despite the fact that they're so terrible. But from, as you said, I think it's, it's more of a privilege because when you think of people you know, in the middle class and and, and growing and, and, and you know, like um, the rich, rich, you have this awareness of climate change. And I think now as the narrative gets pushed and people start to think, wow, you know, air pollution is such a big deal. I'm hearing some discourse from motorcycle riders saying, I'm going to buy a motorcycle because it's, it saves me money, but also because I want to breathe better, which is something that's really emergent. But again, it's an education. I think it's not that they don't care. I think it's just they don't know. And they don't just don't know how beneficial it would be to their health in the long term. And there's, there's kind of like an, a point where we or people who do have an understanding of climate need to educate motorcycle riders. And Mazi tries to do that. And I think there are other people in the industry as well, you know, by publishing articles and videos, etc., on, on effects of climate change and how it's going to help them become better workers for a longer period of time, so their families stick around longer, um, which is then also beginning to shift perceptions on that particular topic. But as you said, Western or developed countries do contribute a lot more than the continent. And you probably mostly see climate adaptation strategies as solutions here, as opposed to climate mitigation strategies, which we're doing with electric mobility. But we just think that transport is such an integral part to development of any other sector that it just needs to happen um, from this particular perspective. So initially, you know, back in 2019, I would have told you, no, there's like no way, you know, riders are thinking about climate, but this is beginning to shift. And as more motorcycles actually come in and there's more visibility, then we're seeing more consumers starting to care, more of our customers starting to care that they're driving an electric bike and even a sense of pride where people say, oh, we really like that we have an electric motorcycle because we are contributing to making sure Nairobi is cleaner. Jesse, there are some that argue that there's no bigger, more existential issue than climate change. And if we don't address that, then nothing else matters. There's other people that say, well, actually, look, climate change is a big issue, but energy poverty is as big or maybe bigger. I mean, there's still a billion plus people that don't have access to basic electricity that that you and I take for granted. And that is a more pressing issue than climate change. How do you think about that? 
I think climate change underpins a lot of the problems. You know, when you talk about energy poverty, when you talk about um, food insecurity, when you talk about water insecurity, climate change completely covers and in many cases will exacerbate the issues that are already present on the continent. And I think that it's not wise to think about them as mutually exclusive, that these problems are then, you know, independent and we need to focus on, on one more than the other. Climate change does tie into energy poverty. I think, you know, I'm here in uh, South Africa and the minute I, I, I got to Johannesburg, there was load shedding, which means, you know, the power just went off and this has been happening here, right, in one of the most developed uh, countries on the continent. And so, you know, when you, when you look at how energy is distributed or is made with hydro, etc., then Distribution of power is absolutely key, but then if you don't have food, you're not going to think about power as a human being. I think, you know, you've got food, water, shelter is a basic needs, and that's really affected by climate change. And even when we speak towards more urban areas where we're operating, it's absolutely crucial for us to take climate change into consideration because we just know it's going to get harder and harder for our consumers to move and to operate. And if there's more problems with health when it comes to air pollution and stuff like that, it's just not going to work. So for me, how I think about it is climate change really underpins most of the problems we're facing and it's only going to make that worse. And we don't have to silo ourselves into, oh, you know, I'm climate change, I'm energy poverty. But what is the bridge that exists and how can we then figure out a way that then connects both? And what we're doing, I think, speaks a little bit to that. Where does justice fit into all this? And what I mean, I mean, you could take that many different ways, but what I'm thinking about is the Western nations and the Industrial Revolution and the externalities weren't factored in at all. And, you know, the quality of life that we in the West have enjoyed has put a big toll on the planet and put us out of balance with the planet that we rely on to sustain life. And then in more developing countries that haven't had the chance to enjoy that quality of life, just when they finally start to get a taste of it, and they want it very bad, right? And then we're going to come along and say, well, you can't do it because, you know, that'll be a big source of emissions and it'll knock the planet out, out even further out of balance. And there's already an emergency, right? And so should the restrictions be the same across all aspects? all corners of the world? Or is it fair that the developed countries play a bigger role in cleaning things up? How, how do you think about that? Incredible question, uh, Jason, because that's a sentiment that's really shared by many in energy, energy spaces, um, but also by a lot of on the ground Kenyans and Africans. Um, I'll give you an example. Mozambique just discovered natural gas off the shore. You could say natural gas is a bit cleaner, but when it comes to exploitation of that, then you, it kind of people then you know lead towards this is a global agenda. It wants to keep Africans poor, or, or doesn't want to have Africans be able to exploit the natural resources. And to a big extent, when when we speak about justice, and you're right, I mean the content contributes what three percent total to global emissions. I think as a conflicting point, as a, as a person who does believe in climate change, I see I see that necessity, but also understanding the very <laughs> fundamental problems that face and, and how fossil fuels have enabled development at an incredible scale. And so for me, there's no really easy answer there. I think that there needs to be a, a transition. I don't think it's going to be, hey, guys, completely switch, move from this particular area. Kenya is lucky. We have a 92% clean grid based geothermal. But that's not the same case for the rest of the continent. And it almost seems that we are there's a bit of a punishment, especially when you look at like amount of financing that's going into this particular industry, green financing and saying, you know, anything that's not shouldn't be financed. And when you think about it from this perspective, 
I spoke to someone who works in oil and gas and said, it's our right to exploit these resources. We've not had that opportunity. And so I think that there is a space for that. I think if developed countries can get down their own emissions to a certain point and the continent can have a little bit of a space to build resiliency as we then think about transitioning, because I think the transition still needs to happen, but expecting a complete shift when you don't have the right, as you said, there's a lot of energy poverty, uh, there's lack of infrastructure, etc. I think is a little bit kind of sitting on a high horse and not really being in touch with the realities of a billion people that really need this particular dirty. And, and you're right, it's a tough question. But I think it is something that people debate all the time and then say, yeah, yeah, you know, climate change, blah, 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 blah. But we know where our capital comes from and how capital is allocated. And so that becomes a, a challenging prospect as well for people to then exploit the resources. So. When you see these climate scientists on places like Twitter or wherever else they can get a megaphone that are saying like, essentially trying to like shake us all by the shirt collar and say like, you need to wake up. Like I've been screaming for 20 years and nobody's listening to me and we all need to wake up. There's no revolution, right? Um, but you're talking about how something is petrol powered, but 10 bucks cheaper, right? Then then people are going to go with the, with the petrol powered. And so my question for you is, Yes, we need to bring about change. Yes, it needs to happen aggressively. But how productive is it uh, and how important is it to try to win the hearts and minds of the masses in terms of the, the existential problem of climate change versus just swapping out the infrastructure under the hood invisibly and letting them go about their daily lives? I think it's uh, both a short and a, and a long-term question. I think swapping out the infrastructure, as you said, under the hood is the lowest hanging fruit, right? Speaking to economics, speaking to... Because lots of people, I think, in Kenya and on the continent are very much, show me, I'll believe you, right? And where something affects them directly. And this is why we say when you have more electric motorcycles, then more trust is developed. Because, you know, when we talk about like crypto, for example, and, and online checking, that wasn't a thing that happened until, you know, COVID and you're seeing now people on the continent really adopting crypto because that pushed people to think about more, you know, secure checkout, whatever, buying stuff online. There's a lot of hesitancy on moving that particular direction. And I think the same case when it comes to climate change. I think that the narrative has a few people would have said, yeah, I've heard about it, but it doesn't really affect me. So I'm not going to care about it. Like that's a Western problem, right? That's, that's a problem that's affecting in the West. You can't really think about that from a consumer standpoint or consumers thinking about that directly. Some do, as I mentioned, it's coming up now, but majority still think about economics. So I think in the short term, yes, swap out the technology under the hood, but that doesn't mean that we don't tell people about climate change. We don't say, what's the solution? And it's not just about saying, hey, climate change is bad, it's happening and, and, and you know, it's a threat and it's going to kill humanity, but what's an alternative? Because if you're going to say that and you're going to tell me stop doing this, you have to you give me something that's not near as good or better than what I was using that's going to make my life similar or in a better state of quality of life. And I think that's where uh, climate activists sometimes fall short in terms of saying, then what's the alternative? What can this person do? What can there's millions of people do that will then be cleaner, but then affect them? And you see this with, with, with cooking stoves where, you know, you've got briquettes now. So there are lots of examples of technologies that are emerging that then speak to climate change, but also solve a very fundamental problem. And I think when you layer those two together, 
you have a really win, you have an interesting formula that then speaks to not only the economics, average African person, average Kenyan person, but also to their hearts. And I think if we're thinking about creating climate justice, that is absolutely required. You need people to think about it in a way that affects them directly. But the way that's going to happen is once they see that as an effect, as an effect to their lives, not some abstract thinking of saying, oh, you know, climate change is bad. Uh, it's, it's a bit chicken and egg because when that happens, it's maybe a bit too late. <laughs> but this is the challenge we're facing and making it real to people is potentially one of the biggest ways to even drive adoption. You, you mentioned crypto. I mean, is, is, is that something that is being talked about and utilized much in Kenya? Yeah, but not, not specifically for, you know, direct payments. Like we wouldn't sell a bike and get paid in crypto, for example, or you wouldn't buy tomatoes from a lady who sells on the side of the street with crypto. But there is an imagined culture um, of crypto being used and, and then as a democratizing tool in Kenya, but nothing really on a, on a massive scale. There's certainly some segments of the climate community that highlight the energy intensity of crypto and say, look, it has, it might have other uses. Not that we can see. Uh, we just see a bunch of like Ponzi schemers and, and get, get rich quick people. But even if it did, which it doesn't, look at the energy footprint. I mean, you are climate motivated and building a business that is trying to accelerate the clean energy transition. How do you think about crypto? So I think the use case for crypto was really, really powerful was remittances. You've got a lot of African diaspora that are sending money back home. And I don't know if you've ever sent money to a continent, Jason, uh, but it's really tricky. <laughs> um, and so you've, you've got like imagined uh, fintechs that are, are working to solve this problem. But and before Ethereum's gas fees are so high, you could quickly just send money to someone and, you know, boom, it's in your pocket. You know, government or you know, waiting at you know, whatever, Western Union, you just get your cash and you're ready to go. And I think that was really, really interesting. And that's why you see it's one of the biggest things in Nigeria as a use case. And the prop, the, the payment infrastructure um, and the way people live, crypto really enables that, right? People, crypto really solves a fundamental problem when it comes to remittances and permissions, securities, a lot of opportunity um, on the blockchain, but also crypto as, as a whole that can help. Now, when you speak about, about that from an energy perspective, I think that crypto isn't particularly the only way that we could do this. I think it's the easiest now and potentially has a lot of like fanboys and, and people that really love it. You know, I, I have a crypto account, I do Binance, etc. But when we speak about it from, again, an adoption point of view and an energy point of view, those data mining centers are not present on the continent, right? Most of them are outside and, and, and emissions really are, are produced in that particular area. I don't see it as an, especially when speaking reflectively back into, into Africa, I don't see it as a imagined problem, but I do think that you've got power users in Nigeria. I think there was a stat, I could be misquoting here, that outside China, etc., Nigeria was one of the largest people, crypto users in the world. Um, and so I think that for us, it solves a fundamental problem. And yeah, I think People are going to use what makes sense to them financially first, before they think about energy, before they think about climate, before they think about anything else. Because you then need to say, hey, auntie has sent me 200 bucks. I've got it in three, in three, sec in three minutes, and I'm able to continue living my life, right? You're not going to think, oh, you know, what is the intensity of energy, et cetera, et cetera. So from a purely practical standpoint, you're going to be able to do a lot more with crypto. Um, is that energy intensive? Yes. 
But is that the only option that we could do? No. So I think there's, a, there's an avenue that doesn't really use crypto, but right now there's a lot of adoption. And I think it's probably going to be here to stay. Coming back around to Mazi, if you look at the challenge in front of you and the factors that are outside of your control, if you could change one thing to most accelerate your progress, that is not something that you control. What would you change and how would you change it? I would I would source motorcycles locally. <laughs> I'd be able to to bridge my supply chain gap because I think that's where the real challenge is um, in terms of just getting units into the country. And if I, if, I, if I could cheat a little bit and, and say two things, I would also ensure that the government takes out VAT and, and takes out particular taxes and gives incentives for electric vehicles in Kenya, whether that's from a tariff perspective of electricity charging, special importation tax rebates or benefits, um, and just like zero rate electric motorcycles. I think if I could control that, that, that's something that would really push the needle. And, you know, in terms of just like supply chain, obviously that's something that affects people and manufacturing on the continent is, is still coming up. But I think those two are, are the challenges now that are affecting everyone in, in mobility, um, but also really things that would then really accelerate transition towards electric motorcycles or trans immobility on the continent. And Jesse, for anyone listening that's intrigued by your work, who do you want to hear from and how can listeners be helpful to you, if at all? We're always looking to connect with uh, like-minded uh, individuals in the climate space. So we want to improve how we you know, collect our data and how we, we what is publish reporting, et cetera. So people interested in that particular field, anyone that has really interesting relationships with suppliers, but manufacturers in markets uh, like you know China and India, uh, that's also very uh, key to me. We also think that you know capital markets in the States are a bit more developed than pretty much anywhere else in the world. So if there's anyone that's really interested from an investment point of view and look at Mazi and the opportunity in terms of the market size, that's also something I'd like to extend. Yeah, so I, I think those are kind of like three my three asks. And we're if you're in Nairobi, please let me know. I, I would love to have you ride an electric motorcycle, come out here, see what we're about. Um, and also like looking for any particular talent that's that's interested in maybe doing an internship or voluntary basis um, here. That would be cool to then have your voice added or your contribution added to the work we're doing in Nairobi. Jesse, anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? The future is definitely electric. Great uh, posing questions Jason has asked here from a point of view of what does it actually mean in terms of what people in the West think and, and developing world think and what are the practical realities on the ground. And what I think is that, again, net positive is my take is, is what I want people to take away from that if you know the outcomes of what we're doing really have a net benefit to society, obviously not siloed, that is what makes more sense because you know trying to attempt to solve all the problems in the world will just leave you depressed um, and, and really in a bad way. So I want to end on a really positive note say the future is electric, we're building it here um, on the continent and I can't wait to see more electric motorcycles and more electric buses, more electric vehicles on the road. A great point to end on. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and best of luck to you and the whole Mazzy Mobility team. Thank you, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now 
jacobs22.co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.